resonate with it in some way, shape, or form. But it is simply this, that certainty is a huge part of who we are as people. Certainty is a huge part of who we are. And the reason why it is a huge part of who we are as human beings is because all of us, every single one of us, in some way, shape, or form, we all want control, some more than others. I have to repack my dishwasher every time because it needs to be packed a particular way. I want control. Maybe it's not that for you. Maybe it's something else. We all want control. We all want clarity. We want a sense of knowing what's going on in the world, and we all want a sense of security. And I think in South Africa, not just a physical security, like a security of our future. We all want control, clarity, and security. Certainty is such a big part of that. It's a, it's a huge part of our human nature, and our brains are, in fact, wired to desire a sense of security and a control and safety. We're, we're wired to desire certainty. Now, because of that reality, because we're wired to desire certainty and long for certainty and look for certainty, certainty can often become an idol in our lives. Can often become an idol in our lives. Now, here's the thing about an idol, right? An idol becomes an idol not because of an intrinsic value and worth that it has in and of itself. Something doesn't become an idol in our world because it is valuable. It becomes an idol in our world because we give it value. And certainty has certainly become that. We have given certainty incredible value in our world. We place such high value on it. We, we long to be in control. We long to be in control of our futures. We long to be in control of our families. We long to be in control. We value and long for certainty and clarity, rather. We long for clarity. It happens in every work environment. You just want clarity. You just want to know what's going on. You just want a clear path. And we all long for security. Now, just to pause here around the word idolatry, because maybe you hear that and you're a little bit uncomfortable. That's okay. Here's, here's uh, I just want to get some, some context for this word. In the original Greek, this word is uh, idiolatres. And I kind of feel like my big fat Greek wedding as I say that, but, but that's the word and I'm not going to pronounce it again. But the, in the original Greek, this word that I'm not going to say again that we have idolatry from is made up of two root words. The first, word, uh, first root word is latreo. Latreo means to worship or to serve. It means that you're a hired hand to something that you serve. The second part of the word, the second root word is idiolon, which is to serve or to worship idiolon, an image, a likeness, or a phantom of the mind. To have something that we hold up as an idol is to worship, to hold highly in high regard something that is a likeness, it's an image, it's a phantom of the mind. Now, here's why I want to share that with you. Because making an idol out of certainty is like you and I worshiping an illusion. Making an idol out of certainty is like you and I worshiping an illusion. It's like leaning the full weight of our lives, taking all that we are, all that we long for, all that we hope for, leaning the full weight of our lives against a cloud, against a fog, and hoping, just hoping that it will hold us up. That's what it's like when we trust in something that's not actually able to hold us up. And I think for many of us and for me in so many different like, ways and places in my life, part of what's been so unsettling during this global pandemic is that so many of the things that I found certainty in, so many of the things that I had control over, so many of the things that I had clarity around, so many of the things that I felt secure in, those things have been proven to be fleeting and frail in the midst of the global uncertainty that we faced. We thought we were okay. 
And then the president said, you, no, you're going home for five weeks and then longer and then longer and then longer. And I know for some of you that's hit really personally. For some of us it's been an inconvenience. For some of us it's been a deep challenge. But one of the things that the global uncertainty has shown us is that all of us cling to certain things. Now what this should do for us, this, this stirring and this challenge, what this should do for us is lead us to a place where we ask ourselves an important question. We should ask ourselves the question that's simply this. Are you, am I, are we leaning our lives, trusting our lives against something that can actually hold us up? Are you? Are you leaning your life against something that can actually hold you up? If you're wondering whether you have made certainty an idol, like I know I have in parts of my life, maybe these questions will help you. Do you feel like everything would be okay if only you could just have more, that, uh, it would all be okay if I just had. Or, or maybe another question, do you feel anxiety or fear around the possibility of losing that, letting go of this, that relationship? Do you feel anxiety? What gets stirred up in you as you think about the possibility of losing something? And maybe you don't even have to think about it. Maybe it's not like a hypothetical for you. Maybe you have experienced this very reality. Maybe you've lent your life up against a paycheck, a job, a relationship, something that you hoped in. And then in, in all the chaos that's gone on, it's proven itself to be an illusion of the mind, a likeness, not solid. Now I want you to hold on to that thought as we get into today's miraculous story. We're in this series uh, looking at the miraculous power of God. And, and because of that, there's a miraculous power that, that has an ability to change our lives. And I don't know about you, but I know that I need, and I'm hoping and I'm holding on to, just a, a bit of miraculous power. I'd like a little bit of that in my life. Maybe you would too. And so let's get into it. Now, now the real, uh, sorry, before we get into it, let me rather say this. I, I'm aware that for some of you sitting here today, as we speak about this idea of something being miraculous, that maybe you have real skepticism around that. Maybe you're not sure whether miracles did or didn't happen or whether they do and don't still happen. Maybe that's because in your world, uh, you hoped for a miracle. You hoped that something would happen. You prayed that something would happen and then it didn't. And so you're skeptical or maybe you're just not sure about this all. I wanna invite you into a story today that I hope will speak to that skepticism, skepticism and I hope will encourage every single one of us. And it's a story that comes out of the book of Luke. And if you have your Bibles here with you, you can turn to Luke chapter five. Uh, if you have a phone, you can open version or just follow along on the screens. Uh, from Luke chapter five, it's a book in the New Testament. And Luke, the, the man who wrote this book was a doctor and a meticulous, meticulous researcher. In fact, in order to compile this book uh, that he has given for us to learn from, he conducted numerous interviews with people who followed Jesus, who lived with Jesus, who watched Jesus's life. And he did this so that he could give us, you and I, an accurate account of where Jesus went, what Jesus did, and what Jesus said. And so in Luke chapter 5, uh, Luke gives us some context. He explains that, that Jesus had been doing some incredible things in a fishing community called Magdala. And now he's on a return journey back to what had become his home base of Capernaum. And it's on this journey that this miracle happens. And uh, many historians believe that this miracle happened in Peter's house. So we're going to read from Luke uh, 5.17. One day, while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were sitting nearby. And then Luke just kind of puts in brackets, he's like, hey guys, I want you to know that this isn't normal what is happening next. 
Like the fact that this thing's happening next is not normal, and I just want you to know that it was happening. It seemed that these men uh, showed up from every village in Galilee and Judea, as well as Jerusalem. Important facts. You see, Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were studied in the Torah. And in essence, this group of men would go from town to town, community to community, and judge the validity of what people said who claimed to be rabbis. So, so someone would, would rise up in a town with influence and, and a voice, and they claim to be a rabbi. And so what would happen is Pharisees and, and, and teachers of the religious law would go and listen to what was being said and, and listen to if in their mind and to their knowledge anything was heresy, and then they'd deal with it. And what's interesting is Luke saying, how, I want you to know usually what would happen is someone would rise up in a town and the Pharisees from that town would go and listen. But with Jesus, it was a little different. It wasn't just one town, it was three towns and Jerusalem, which was like the major, the major oaks. These were the Mephuta bosses. They also came along to listen to what Jesus was saying. And, and they were there to, to decide or discover whether Jesus was a heretic. Now there's an interesting side note here as well. And Luke gives us this really important little detail is that they were sitting. Now, you and I might see that and go, well, why is that important? It, it's important and it's written down because it actually mattered to the people that were there. It was actually something that was quite uncommon. So what would happen in, the, in sort of this culture and in this day is the teacher, the person who was teaching, would sit and teach. So I would be sitting. I, I'm not going to sit because I can't get back up. I've eaten too much pasta, right, during lockdown. It's a reality. But the teacher would sit and those that were learning would stand around and listen in. But what Luke says is this was a little different. The Pharisees and these teachers, they were sitting as well. And it was an insult. Their sitting wasn't just a laziness issue. Their sitting was saying to Jesus and all those gathered, we want you to know that we think we're equal to the one who you're listening to. The Pharisees were sitting as a way to say, Jesus, you think you're better than us, but no, we think we're the same. We think we have the same moral authority as you do. And we're here to judge you, Jesus, for what you're saying. It's an important detail that they were sitting. Now, it's easy for us to sit on the other side of history and look at the Pharisees and, and these men and, and wonder, like, what on earth were you doing sitting, judging Jesus? Like, come on, it's Jesus. This is the one that we know and follow. But I think if we're honest, and if you're honest, just with yourself for a moment, it's incredibly easy for us to sit in judgment of something that stands in opposition to what we believe. It's easy for us to sit in judgment against something that is in opposition to what we believe. And if you don't believe me, go onto Facebook. Go read any news article. Go onto social media and see people. Take a position around what they believe and then fight for it. The church, Christians of today, we're far too easily known for what we are against than what we are for. The Pharisees had certainty around what they believed. They had absolute certainty around what they believed. And so they were there to judge Jesus for, for being in opposition to that. They stood in opposition. And when something challenges our certainty, here's what's important to know. When something challenges our certainty, we are either open to it or we stand in opposition to it. Maybe you've experienced that here at church. Something's been said and you either fight against it or you're open to it. And what's interesting for me is that the Christian faith, our faith, we're prone to this too. It's easy to point fingers at someone else, another religion, but we're prone to this too. Particularly in the early church history, for the first 300 years of uh, the followers of Jesus, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The early followers of Jesus were, were, were oppressed. They were the minority. They were, they were so oppressed and so much in the minority that they were actually persecuted for their beliefs. And it led the church, the early church, to gather in underground tombs, in catacombs. Not a, not a pleasant place. 
not, not fresh air flowing in, no social distancing. Like this wasn't a good place to meet. But in about 400 AD, things started to shift. Culture started to change and for a number of reasons. And what happened is that the early followers of Jesus moved from being the oppressed minority to the powerful majority. They moved from being hid, from hiding in tombs and catacombs to standing in places of power and prestige. And what's important to know about this shift and this change is that their way of reading and understanding Scripture started to change and shift. See, when they were oppressed and when they were trying to get through the chaos of the world around them, they simply looked to Jesus and, and, asked, and they asked themselves the question, how does this Jesus give us strength to get through what we're getting through? How does this Jesus give us strength to complete the mission that we know he's called us to? But as this shift started happening in about 400 AD, the shift started being away from how Jesus gives us strength to how Scripture, became, how scripture becomes a, um, let me say it like this, how Scripture becomes an establishment literature in order to maintain our position of power and place within culture. That was the shift that started happening. And the most dangerous part of this shift from being the oppressed minority to the powerful majority, from Scripture being used as a way to justify our place in culture, is that our faith started shifting from who it is we believe in to what it is we believe about. From who it is we believe in to what it is we believe about. From placing our faith and trust in someone, from, from leaning the full weight of our lives against someone that we know can hold us up, to what it is we believe about certain things. And we still find that a challenge for us today. It's why the Pharisees were there. They were there to see if Jesus had the right belief about certain thing, things. Luke goes on, he says, and then the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. This is a doctor noting that stuff was going on. This wasn't just a normal, like normal gathering. Stuff was going on. The healing power was strongly with Jesus. So Jesus is there teaching in, in, in Peter's house. The house is packed. The Pharisees are sitting in sort of opposition and, and scorn against Jesus, waiting for Jesus to say something. That's heresy, and then this happens. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man who was sleeping on a mat. Now, what's important to know about first century Jewish culture is that someone who was paralyzed or someone who was inflicted with this kind of disease or this kind of issue was deemed to be unclean. If someone was paralyzed, the belief at the time was if they were paralyzed, it's because either they or their parents had committed a sin that was worthy of this kind of punishment. And because of that sin and because of that punishment, this person was unclean. And every young Jewish boy knew and every person at that time knew you simply didn't hang around with someone who was deemed to be unclean. Because if you were close to someone who was unclean, you became unclean. You became unclean. But these four friends, and I'm, the only reason I'm saying four here is that it actually doesn't say in the story is it was a mat. So there were four sides, so I'm guessing, right? But these four friends strike an interesting contrast between the Pharisees and them. They strike an interesting contrast around this reality of believing what as opposed to who. They were willing to set aside everything that they had been taught, everything that they had grown up knowing, all that they had believed in to go to someone that they knew could make a difference. They were willing to set that all aside. And so they tried to take him to Jesus, inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of, the, because of the crowd. It's so important to see this in the story. The friends were willing to question all that it is that they believed in because they 
because they knew there was someone who could make a difference. They were willing to risk their reputation, and that was super important in that day and age. They were willing to risk their reputation to go into a crowd of people because they believed Jesus could do something incredible, because they let go of what they believed in to go to someone they believed in. And so they went up onto the roof and uh, took some tiles off, which I'm sure the owner was really stoked about, and they lowered the sick man on his mat down in the, into the crowd right in front of Jesus, which is impressive. Now look and notice what Jesus says in response to them. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith. He's not just talking about the faith of the paralyzed man. He's talking about their faith, the faith of the friends. The paralyzed man's faith was likely included in that, but, but there was a faith of the friends. And because of the faith of the friends, because they were willing to let go of what they had been taught to hold on to something that they knew, someone that they knew could make a difference, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And I wonder for a moment if the friends were a little disappointed. I mean, earlier Luke tells us, like, Jesus, Jesus was healing people. The healing power was strongly with Jesus. And now they, they go through all this effort. They wreck the roof of a guy's house who they don't know. They lower, they lower their mate down. And then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I mean, I think, I think, I might be wrong, but I think they'd hope that the guy would get up and walk. It's why they went through the effort. And yet Jesus starts there. He starts there with your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't have time to go into all the complexity and, and the, the nuances of why Jesus started there. But if this interests you, I really want to encourage you, go home, study Luke 5, simply ask the question, why did Jesus start with your sins are forgiven? It's really fascinating. And the, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is sitting in their authority in the corner? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. These Pharisees had so much certainty in what it is they believed in that they had set up opposition to anything that challenged that. And when we stand in opposition, we're simply not open. The Pharisees, who knew that there was a God who could forgive sins, who knew that there was a coming Messiah who would free them, were so in opposition to anything that was around them, so in opposition to the certainty that was around them that they were missing the very reality that the God they knew was coming was in front of them. Jesus knew what they were thinking, which must have sucked because they were probably skinnering in the corner and then Jesus looked at them and said, I know what you're thinking. And so he asked them, why do you question this in your heart? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? One of the things I love about Jesus, I actually think he was super sarcastic. Uh, maybe you don't, but I like, he's like, is it easier for, to say like your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And, and let's just walk through this logically for a moment. Um, it is much easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Watch, Dylan, your sins are forgiven. I know you needed to hear that because you're dodgy, um, but your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know, and Steve, I probably should have said that to you as well if I'm honest, but I don't know whether that's true or not, partially because I don't have the authority to say that, but also because there's no evidence of that reality. Your sins are forgiven. But to say to a paralyzed person that would be lying in front, get up and walk, and then for the person to walk, that takes authority. And so I will prove to you, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus is challenging the certainty of the Pharisees. He's saying, you think I don't have the power to forgive sins. You think that I'm not the Son of Man. To prove to you that I am, I will heal the man, and he got up. And look what happens. Immediately, as everyone watched, Luke is saying, I want you to know, I've checked this out. Everyone was watching. The man jumped up. Not got up slowly. 
Jesus' power is not like a gentle thing. Jesus' power is radical. The man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. And everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, fair enough, we've seen amazing things today. Uh, Now let me ask you a question, a question that I asked you a little bit earlier. What are you, sitting here this morning, what are you leaning the full weight of your life against? What are you trusting in? What are you hoping in? Really, be honest with yourself. You're not going to tell me. We're socially distanced. You don't even have to tell the person next to you. But what, what, what in your life are you scared of losing? What in your life gives you a sense of anxiety when you think about losing that thing? That relationship, that person, that job, that paycheck. What gives you anxiety? Is there someone or something whose affection and attention towards you, that if it was gone and taken away, you'd lose your sense of security? If so, and I know this is true for me, and maybe it's true for you, maybe then just maybe, we've set up that thing as an idol, as something that we think is going to give us clarity, hope, and control. But it's not. I I think if we're honest, sometimes we, we can find a sense of hope, a sense of trust in things that we can actually put our minds against, that we can actually control, that we can actually give clarity to, that we can actually find a sense of security from. But one of the incredible opportunities that we're given during this global pandemic, during this global uncertainty, is to truly ask ourselves the question. And if you haven't asked it already, maybe this is a good time to start. But, but part of the beauty of this, this, the stuff that's going around us is that we have an opportunity to ask ourselves, God, what am I trusting in? What am I putting my hope in? What am I putting my certainty in? And the wisdom writer of the book of Proverbs says it like this. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Let me not knock anything over. Sorry, Chris. Let me illustrate it to you like this. Earlier I tried to climb this, it didn't go well. You see, when we make certainty an idol, when we make the things that we hope in, like our job, our paycheck, the relationships that we have, when we are trusting in something that we think is going to give us a sense of control or clarity or security, what happens when we face challenge and trial, what happens when we face a global pandemic is that the foundations are shaken. And if we try to rest and lean our lives against something that we think is going to hold us up and we think is going to manage the weight of who we are, and my weight's quite big at the moment, so I'm not willing to do that, But what happens when we put our faith and trust in uncertainty and then we face a a season of uncertainty, what we think could always hold us up simply comes crashing down. And maybe some of you have experienced that. You've experienced that over the last while. Maybe what, what you held onto was taken away. But here's the thing. There's an invitation to you today. There's an invitation to me today to lean not against my own understanding, but to trust in the Lord with all my heart. That's the invitation to you. The invitation to you and I is to 
find certainty not in a belief about something, but in someone. The invitation to you and I today is to lean our lives against something that can actually hold us up. The invitation to you today is to trust fully in the one who says to you, your sins are forgiven and then made a way for that to happen. The invitation to you today is to trust your lives against something that is powerful enough to say to the very brokenness that's in you, the very physical and emotional brokenness that's in all of us, be well, be healed, get up and walk. That's the invitation to you and I, to lean the full weight of our lives, not in belief about something, but a belief in someone, to trust Jesus with all our heart and all our understanding. And there's an invitation to you. Maybe for the first time to say, God, I've, I've tried to lean my life against stuff that's proven to be an illusion, a phantom of the mind, and it's come crashing down. But right now, I'm choosing to trust in you, Jesus. And, and what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it means go on a journey of discovering who Jesus is and, and, and discovering that he is trustworthy, that you can rest your life against his. And maybe that means going to read the book of Luke. I mean, this is an incredibly well-researched book. Go read it. Go check it out. But I think for some of us here today, the invitation for you is to say, God, I don't know what lies ahead. I don't know what certainty, I'm so uncertain of what lies ahead, but this is what I know. I don't want to rest against certainty, I want to rest against you. I don't want to hope in something that could be frail and fickle and flown away. I want to I trust Jesus in who you are, in your power, and in your goodness. And then to hear the simple words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, now get up and walk. And then to jump, to jump into the life that Jesus has for you. So would you hear those words today? Your sins are forgiven, now get up and take your mat. Let's stand together. I wanna pray. God, I pray right now for those of us who in this room have had to deal with the very harsh reality of things that we thought would give us certainty being taken away. For those who faced incredible trial and challenge during this hardship, and maybe it's still out ahead, maybe it's still coming. Father, would you encourage us and build faith in us to trust our lives to you, to lean the full weight of our lives against you, Jesus, because you are trustworthy. You're one who can hold us up. And so Jesus, for all of us, forgive us, forgive me for the times where I've lent on my own understanding, where I've put faith and trust in things that haven't proven to be true. They've been a likeness, an illusion. Forgive me for those times, Jesus. Help me, help me, Jesus, to lean my life against you, to put my trust in you every day, every moment. And I pray that for us together, God, we would hear your words, your graceful, powerful, miraculous words to us, to us today. Your sins are forgiven. You're free. You're free of all the past. And to say to us, and, I, and, and maybe you're here, and this is a very real prayer that you need to hear, to say to your brokenness, get up. Get up. Jesus' words are powerful. Get up. Get up. You're healed. You're well. You're made well. Would you hear those words? And would you jump up and go? Jesus, we thank you that you're a powerful God. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.